So how is everyone? Glad to see school's back in uh, session because we're starting to fill out these pews a little bit more evenly these days. I'm glad to be here. Are you glad to be here? Amen. Amen. This has been a good week. I've gotten rid of a few tag-alongs, so that's always a fun thing for me as a father. Now I just get my wife back in the groove. And <laughs> if you're a teacher, you know what I'm talking about. So today we are continuing in our series through the New Testament. Uh, if you're following along, you will realize we actually completed two books before we even got to Hebrews. Uh, if you wanted a sermon on Titus and Philippian, you may have to wait until the next time we do that and just pray that we land on a Sunday on one of those two short, short books there in the Bible. Uh, but the letter to the Hebrews is an interesting letter. It, it's it's kind of different from all the other letters that we have. It, it's sort of a letter, but then it's sort of a blessing. Um, we think we'd kind of know the author, but we don't really. Uh, it may have been Paul. It may have been Bartimaeus. It could have been Clement, maybe Luke, or even Apollos. Uh, we think we know the audience, but then we don't really. It was more likely written to uh, Jewish Christians uh, in the first millennial uh, that were facing persecutions. Uh, one thing we do know is if you don't know your Old Testament stories, this book is going to be very difficult. But in particular, if you don't know the first five books of our Old Testament, this book is going to be difficult for you. So if you're reading the Bible really for the first time, or if you haven't been in church all that long, I would recommend as we read through this letter together, or this book together, that if you see a reference to something from the Old Testament, just stop there. Look up the reference. Read the context of where it comes from, because actually it makes this letter far richer than it would be if you didn't know those stories already. But I'm sure many of us got a pretty good idea. And sometimes it might just be a good refresher course uh, to do that. Uh, we're pretty sure we kind of know where the date of the letter started. Somewhere between 70 AD, maybe 93, depending on who we figure out even as the author. But that's not really important. The importance is the message that it tells. It's really writing to those who grew up in church. Now, some of these people, they're suffering persecution. We're not. But if you've grown up in church, this book is a refresher. It, it encourages you, but it also warns you. Sometimes when we grow up in church or grow up in a faith household or a religious household, we take for granted what we have. Those who have been persecuted and have lived through the hard times, they know exactly what they have because it was taken away and they had to get it back. For those who grew up outside the faith, they know exactly what they had because they did not experience the joy of knowing God their entire life. God had intervened in their life. Jesus intervened in their life sometime later on. But let's look at this book, this letter, as both encouragement for who we are as believers today, but also a warning for us as we live our Christian life out in the world. Because if we live like the world... We don't live like Christians. We live like atheists. But if we carry our faith from who we are into the world, but not of the world, we live by the example that Jesus Christ set before us. Because he lived in this world. He lived a perfect life. A life that way back in the beginning, Adam couldn't live. And he lived a life for us to follow as our example. 
He lived it perfectly. And he died on the cross as a substitute for us. He took on the penalty that we deserved. And so we have to respond with our lives in submission to who Jesus Christ was and is. And far as the freedom that we have gained through our knowledge of him and our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if you will, let's read a few of the verses. These first two verses in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, really sets the tone of this letter. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last day, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also created the world. So in the beginning, God created the world, and there was Jesus and, and all this kind of stuff. We start with the beginning. So if you know your Old Testament stories on how the Hebrew people became the Hebrew people, you know this, that there was a story of beginning, there was a story of fall, there was a story of flood, and then we really skip after the first few chapters of Genesis, get into the story of the Hebrew people. It's not really until chapter 11 of Genesis that, well, 12 actually, that we get into the Hebrew people as a Hebrew people. Before that, we are concerned with the global phenomenon of creation. But in these uh, later chapters in Genesis, we find that there's this man called Abram who was called out. God changes his name to Abraham, and he does this stuff. And, and Ab- Abram leaves his family, leaves his friends, leaves his land and everything to follow what God has told him. Now, Abram has a wife, Sarah, who's a little bit older at this time, and they haven't had a baby. But God promises, through you, I will make your descendants as great as the sands of the sea, and you know, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they follow. And if go back and read that story if you're not familiar with it. But this story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, becomes the father of what we know as the Hebrew people. And through his descendants, this nation is born. God's over all of this. And all of this works to his pleasure. But the way God spoke to those Hebrew people back then, in the early chapter, he sent messengers. He sent angels. And we'll see that in just a minute. He sent these messengers to give a word to God. This goes up even really until we have Moses, who really spoke more to messengers. Now, we had the tent of meetings and things like that where he communicated directly with God. But in many situations, he received messages through angels. Jesus is more than those angels. For he was before the angels. He is above the angels as the heavenly king. And he brought a message to earth himself personally. He didn't send an apostle. But that's how he sent him out into the church. He came directly, incarnate, son of Mary, son of Joseph, born, flesh and blood, just like every single one of us. And he came, he lived, and he died on this earth, just like a historical figure. You can find him in record books. And we can talk about that there was a Jesus who in, from Nazareth who was crucified and all this kind of stuff. There's historical records of this person living But those who are his followers, those who are disciples, those who are in faith found something different. That he wasn't just a messenger sent from God. He was God himself. Both human and divine. If you can wrap your head around that, you can get up and go and leave today. I mean, I can't. I've been struggling with it. I have to take it in faith. In faith that I have seen the eyes of these scriptures open to me. But in faith we see these words come into life. 
But the story goes on in verse 3 of chapter 1. It says this. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the words of His power. Isn't that something? So if you picture the sun, God is the sun. And those, that heat and the rays that come from God, that's Jesus. Every bit apart. Now you get into all these weird analogies on how the Trinity works. That's not what we're talking about here. We were talking about God. Jesus is the radiance of God. We can feel it. We can see it. And actually the radiance of the sun is what gives us our sight. Because without that radiance, we couldn't see. And if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can see now the way we were meant to see. And that is to see the world as God's creation. One that we are both given freedom and responsibility to care for. But we see Jesus as that radiance of God. But we also see him as the imprint. Now we don't really see this as much today. But this is the image of a signet ring pressing into the wax seal on a scroll. It's a very important uh, metaphor in the Bible. The book of Revelations is filled with scrolls. And seals. And as those seals are broken, God's wrath and judgment is poured out. But Jesus is the very imprint, the impression that you get when you press a metal ring into soft wax or clay. He is God Himself. And by His own word of His power, the universe is sustained. Think about that. By the word of Jesus Christ, everything is upheld. But then he goes on and he compares, uh, well, let's follow along. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name of his inheritance is more excellent than theirs. So let's put it this way. So some look, you know, when we talk about funerals and things like that, and there's a common saying that I've heard many times that says, well, uh, God needed another angel, especially when it's a young person who dies. No, God doesn't need another angel. Angels are lower than our status as believers. If we are children of God, if we claim our inheritance through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ and we have made atonement through our faith in Him, we are not another angel. We are much more than that because we have the name of the King imprinted on our life. So we are far superior to that saying. I'm not going to say that it's not helpful to offer words of encouragement. But we are far more superior than the angelic beings. Don't sell yourself short in your status, in your walk with the Lord. And so it goes on, and we'll skip some of that, and we'll start in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, we see these words. It says, therefore, in light of the argument of Jesus and the angels, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Interesting. 
So the words of those messengers that came before and the words of the Old Testament, they have proven to be true. And now something greater has come. Jesus Christ himself, God incarnate, who lived and walked and breathed among us, has come. And because of him, we are now placed in this superior category as heirs to the throne. If what they said in the past was true, shouldn't we pay attention to the present? So if what they said in the past was true, shouldn't we pay attention to our faith? This was a letter to the Hebrews. This was ones who were steeped in this. So what happened in the past? So God sent messengers to tell Moses, go free my people. God sent messengers to tell Abram to leave his homeland. God sent messengers to prophets and said, you need to tell them to straighten their ways or this will happen. And guess what? That happened. If they didn't repent and turn back to God for their salvation, God eventually lifted his hands of protection and let them sow the seeds that they had sown or reap the seeds that they had sown. For if we sow the seeds of disobedience, the justice of God is at hand. That is the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is God calling a select group of individuals to be his mouthpiece, to be his glory on earth. But these individuals, even though they were given special privileges, even though they were given direct contact by these angels, even though they were given the Ten Commandments and the laws and the writings and all this kind of stuff, even though God sent prophets and other messengers along their path, they continued over and over again to fail. There was a point, even you can find in the uh, Chronicles or in the, the letters, the books of the king, where they completely forgot who they were. They were renovating the temple because they knew the rituals that they had performed, and they continued to do those. But that as they were renovating this temple, they found the letter or the book of Deuteronomy. And when they found it, they brought it to King Josiah and they read it. Guess what he did? He cried. Not because a relic was found, but because he had never heard some of the basic words of Scripture read to him. He was the king. He was the most educated. He was the most pampered. He was the one who had all of the services. And if he didn't know the Scriptures, do you think the people knew them? No. It was a very dark time for the people of Israel. Very dark time for the Hebrews. But he went about instituting reforms. He got rid of the foreign gods and the temples and things like that. He was purifying the land. But sometimes we get so far in, it's tough to clear it all out. And his life didn't last long enough for the reforms to continue. And he died. And as the Old Testament says, and he was gathered with his ancestors. And then we see how that led into the time of captivity. And in captivity, they had to remember who they were. And in captivity, the priests got together and they brought what scrolls that they had and they compiled it and they made copies of it. And they began to teach in synagogues instead of the temple so that each and every one that was Hebrew, that was calling on the name of God as their God, would know who they were. 
And so they started teaching and preaching and these kind of things so that the people could remember who they were. And time goes past and the Persians come on the scene. And they are sent back to their holy land to rebuild. But yet we see in the prophecies that they will return. But it doesn't seem like it's quite yet complete. Because they had rebuilt their kingdom. They had rebuilt their holy city. They had rebuilt their temple. But yet they had puppet kings. They weren't yet fully under God. But when the time was right, Jesus Christ was sent. He was sent into those who had reclaimed the scriptures for themselves. But they still weren't reading it correctly. They had put works over a relationship. They knew that if they could just do all the things that the Bible has said, that they would, be, they would get rid of those Romans. They would get rid of their overseers. They would get rid of those who would oppress them. They took, made laws to go on top of laws so that you had to wash your hands a certain way or you would be defiled. And if you're a woman, there are certain things that you had to do or you'd be defiled or you'd defile the men in your life and these kind of things. And so they did all these kind of things over and over again. But then there's something about doing these things, these disciplines over and over again. You become big-headed. You know, we look at the Pharisees and we see that Jesus was at odds ever so against them. And we're like, man, that's just crazy. Why were they living that way? Didn't they see? Well, let's put it this way. Have you ever met somebody who was really into working out? I mean, really into it. Like their whole life revolved around it. Because working out, if you are super fit, it can become addictive. That's all they think about. They, seven days a week they're working out. Two a day sometimes. They watch what they eat and all this kind of stuff. It has become a religion for them. I don't have that problem, but some people do. We know some people like that. We may used to be some people like that. That was the Pharisees. They thought the harder and harder they worked, that the better they are, and that it will improve all this stuff. And they gained a lot of advantage for it. And then people started looking at them. Wow, look how they live their life. They must have it right. I want to start trying to live like that. So I try to follow their example. But then we find that discipline can be hard. Because most of the time when we consider discipline, we think of giving something up. And so those who engage in exercises and things like that, they give up their, their time to sleep in or, or the, their time to celebrate with their family and friends. You know, they're the ones who are at the wedding feast and pass on the cake but take double on the kale chips. It's not right, is it? They got things out of balance in their life. But then we have the other side. We have the gluttons and the alcoholics and those who go to the celebrations and they have a great merry time. But they go home and they do it again and again and again. And eventually they're the polar opposites of those who work so hard to keep their bodies in shape. So what is a worse condition to be in? An over-disciplined or an under-disciplined life? They are both equally bad. Sometimes those of us who grew up in the church, we actually pick the latter, the undisciplined life, and we don't realize it. Because when we think of the disciplines or spiritual disciplines, our culture has primed us to think of monks, those who would build this tower and live up on the top and expose their body to the elements so that they, they may chase themselves and they, they survive on just uh, little pieces of bread alone. There's a story of a, one of these desert fathers who retreated out to the desert and, and he wore this like 
uh, belt made out of uh, hard rope around his waist and eventually pulling it along and dragging whatever weight he had, it started cutting into his flesh. And his flesh started getting infected and little bugs would start eating on him. Sounds horrible. But people flocked to him. They became his disciples. Stephen said when these little things would fall off, he'd pick them back up and put them right back. Isn't that disturbing? There wasn't balance there. So sometimes in our mind when we start thinking of these disciplines, we think that they have to be hard, they have to be tough, they have to be nearly unattainable before they are worthwhile. Did you know Jesus was a very disciplined person? If you want to look at the spiritual dis- disciplines, look at people like Jesus or St. Paul. He said, follow the actions that I do. But look at Jesus' life. So, you know, I'm not sure how he lived that 30 years growing up, but we know he went to church, he studied the scripture because he knew him. He knew him when the time was at hand. He was fully divine, but he was also fully human. There's a story when he was a child where he stayed behind at the temple to hear from the teachers teach. And they were amazed how smart this kid was. But he had to learn. He had to ask questions. He had to grow in his understanding of who God was. And God placed him in the responsibility of Joseph and Mary, two common people, but who lived a life that God had called them to be. And so as Jesus grew, he became strong, and he entered the field. And so we see Jesus really entering in the scene of his ministry at the baptism of John. So we see in obedience, he followed the Spirit's call, and he went and submitted himself to the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance, even though we knew he had nothing to repent for. But it was symbolic of the beginning of his earthly ministry. What did he do after that? The Spirit led him away to the wilderness. So he retreated. He spent 40 days of solitude and fasting. And I'm sure prayer. Prayer uh, dotted Jesus' life. We always see him fasting and praying, it seems like. And he says to his disciples at one point, the only way that you can defeat this demon in this person is through prayer his life habit was a life of prayer but 40 days in the wilderness he spent it fasting that is not something we do as baptist we have potlucks (laughs) we spend it feasting but let's think of it you know i've been studying spiritual disciplines lately i'm trying to put together a program that i'm going to walk us through as a church together But, you know, my mechanical brain, I always have to go to the science and see what we've started. And so there's now uh, um, diets that have become trendy. Have you ever heard of the keto diet? We've got a few probably been on it from time to time. Well, a keto diet is this thing, basically it's named after this uh, process that takes place in your life. And so if you eat the normal American diet, which is in high high in carbohydrates, low in fat, then your body runs off of glucose, sugar, basically. And so all your energy comes from sugar. If you're a runner, they say you need a carb load before that big marathon you're about to do because you need all that extra glucose stores in your body so that you don't drop dead when you're running 26 point whatever it is miles. But keto is a diet that says that's all wrong. It is a high-fat, super-low or ultra-low 
carbohydrate. I mean, 5% or less carbohydrate intake. You eat a couple of, of almonds and you've got that for the day. You eat a lot of healthy fats, these kind of things. But your body, when you deprive it of carbohydrates, you no longer function on glucose. You change to this thing called ketone bodies. And so you enter this state called nutritional ketosis. And your body learns to burn fat instead of glucose for fuel. And so the point of this diet is you have trained your body to burn fat. Well, if you've eaten a fat-filled lunch, once your body uses up all that fat from lunch, guess where does it turn to eat? This stuff right here. It tries to get rid of all that fat excess in your body. And so your body needs basic calories to function. So enough calories for your heart to pump, for your liver to work, for your, uh, the, your intestines to process food, all this kind of stuff. And so that's this new fad. And, and it sounds cool. You can watch all kind of videos on it on, on YouTube. But there's a thing about fasting that's interesting. So there are some who are using fasting actually to treat type 2 diabetes. And quite honestly, the record holder of a fast was this man who weighed 452 pounds when he started his fast. He fasted for 382 days. Look it up if you don't believe me. 382 days. He lived off of multivitamins and zero-calorie drinks. Not diet sodas. They do some other stuff, but basically black coffee, tea, and water. Did you do that for over a year? Well, if you have the fat stores, you sure can. You may not enjoy it, but you can. And the thing about people who do these long-term fasts, they start realizing that hunger is more in the mind than in the belly. It's mind over matter, those kind of things. They say, I always say the first couple days is hard. I'll let you know if I ever try it. But the studies now on people who fast, and you don't have to do 382 days, you can do one day, two days, is after so many hours, your body naturally burns up all of the glucose in it, and it converts to running on ketones. Because if you don't have sugar in you, you don't have carbohydrates in you, your body doesn't produce carbohydrates. It can produce glucose. You've got some stuff in your liver that it can run off of. But eventually, all that easy-to-burn easy calories is gone. It's no longer there. It's kind of like one of them made an example is the food that you eat is like your refrigerator and the fat that you store is like your freezer. If you have stuff in the refrigerator, you never go to the freezer. But once your refrigerator is empty, it's not that big a deal to go down to the freezer and thaw out some, some ribeyes or something like that and cook them for supper. But you always go to the easy choice when you can. And so fasting is interesting because it teaches your body to go into ketosis just like that diet does. But you have far more ketones in your bloodstream through fasting than you ever do from dieting. And most of the ones who, who emphasize all this uh, intermediate fasting schedules, they also recommend this ketone diet. But guess what? You can eat a big old bowl of lasagna tonight for supper. I mean, triple helping of it. But if you skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner the next day, you'll still go into ketosis. You'll be hungry because of all those carbs. Your body is fighting. It says, give me more carbs, give me more carbs. But you'll do it. And so you know what this exercise has taught me? The Bible was right. Look at the book of Daniel. What did Daniel live off of when he was exposed to the decadence of the king? 
water and vegetables. What do many of the ones in the Old Testament live off of? Weird breads and things like that. What did Jesus make a habit of do? Fasting and prayer. Forty days in the wilderness, now he fasted. And there's a thing about these ketones that flow around in your, your blood. It makes your brain function better. So when you're running off of ketones, so when you are in a fasted state, a longer fasted state, and your brain is functioning off these, it's sharper. There's been stories from uh, people captured in World War II that were in Japanese concentration camp. These are soldiers. There's a story of one soldier who learned Norwegian language in a week. Can you believe that? There's some that had read books back in their early days, and they couldn't remember it, but while they were starving with these ketones going because they were living off of their fat stores. They could recite books that they had read. And they used these experiences to keep their spirits up as prisoners of war so that they could survive. Our bodies were designed for both periods of feasting and fasting. So, if you try to live an aesthetic life, and that's all you try to live off of, you're some weirdo living on top of a hill with bugs eating you that you make sure they stay on you. Jesus didn't live that way. He practices these disciplines. He practiced prayer. He practiced Bible study. He practiced solitude. He practiced all of these things. And he gave us an example to live by. But he also practiced celebration and feast. The first thing, first sign that he did for the world to see was turn water into wine. He liked to celebrate. He had a good time. He didn't want the party guests go. But that was his first thing. It was the example of the new covenant, the new blood, the wine of the new covenant. Celebration. Everything has to be balanced in life. And Jesus showed us this. When Jesus would spend time in service, in preaching, in doing the work of his Father... Healing people, raising the dead, all this kind of stuff. What did he do? He retreated. He went to the wilderness. He went to the mountain so that he could pray and that he could spend time with God. It wasn't because that was necessary for God to reward him with the power to do that. It was so he could recharge his body, his soul. Because when you spend your life in service, if that's all you do is serve, eventually you will wear out. And those who exercise, like we exampled earlier, if all you do is exercise seven days a week, your body won't really improve. It's got to have periods of rest so that the muscles can rebuild and become stronger. So the next time that you challenge your body, it'll be ready to take on the task and go a little bit further than you were today. And so as good Baptists, we look at really two basic disciplines, prayer and Bible study. But we're missing a lot when we don't challenge ourselves, when we don't take the words of Paul seriously, where he says, you must train yourself. He said, you know, it's good to train like an athlete, to improve yourself physically. But you've also got to train your body to be a follower of God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and live like he did. If you look at your life and you realize, you know, I haven't really grown much in my faith. Maybe you need to start practicing some of these. Maybe you need to start taking your faith seriously. You know, as I read these words, I, I, I often wonder, I was like, what is our role in salvation? We are saved by grace and grace alone. But are we required to do anything else? 
The more I read scripture, yes, we are. And it's not for merit. It is not so that we can earn our right or favor. It is not that. It is so that we can fulfill the potential that God has placed in us. It's so that we could be the best people that we can be in light of this fallen world. So that we can truly be God's people. So what does that say? Let's think about marriage as an example. So in marriage, did you know the statistics show that the divorce rate among 25-year uh, anniversary married people, so those who have been married 25 years, is on, on a high? There's more divorce rates either before 7 years or after 25. You're like, that seems crazy. If you made it 25, don't you think you could make it 50, 75 if the Lord gives you that many days? Where well, is the problem? At 25 years, your kids are gone from the house. And for those 25 years, you spent most of your marriage caring about what your kids did more than about what your spouse did. And so when your kids are gone, you guess what? You're left with the two of you. And sometimes you find at the end of the road that you don't really like each other all that much. But if you raised your children with balance, where you put your needs of your spouse on the equal par as the needs of your children... In 25 years, you will celebrate the time that you get a little bit more time for you as a couple and that you can grow as a couple again like you did before they came around and that you can see that 50th anniversary or that 75th anniversary. But if we put the needs of our children above the needs of our spouse and we live out of balance, you may be another statistic. And 25 years of marriage is down the tube because you never cared for the person that you entered into that agreement with and that covenant with those many years ago. Retirement is that way as well. Sometimes we work so hard in our life that we're ready for those days where we can just quit. The Bible doesn't say you ever quit. I had a story about a man who had this ultimate harvest, this bumper crop, and that very night his life was taken from him. If you've worked your life and it's time to step away from your employment and to live off the proceeds, great, you've earned it. But maybe this free time on your hand is just what God has given you to either return to those studies that you may have neglected, learn more about the scripture than you ever had before, or maybe spend some time in service or in prayer or with others. Maybe it's time to focus on your life and what God still has in store for you in the second act of your life. I don't know. Just my thoughts today. But it says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? So as the scripture says, what is our role in salvation? The disciplines that we practice aren't to gain merit. They aren't to gain favor. But they are to grow us and take our salvation seriously, one that we may have neglected. So I ask you today, what have you done to grow your faith and your walk with the Lord? Consider that as you leave here today and join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you that you have given us this opportunity to come into your house. Lord, I pray for all of those that are here today. I pray a special blessing on them. I pray that they have heard these words and that they will take serious the warning of scripture and to take their walk and their faith 
and set, it, and set it above all else in their life so that they may see you first above all because you are greater than the angels. It is in your name we pray. Amen. And now at this time as we enter of invitation, if Jesus Christ has laid a burden on you,